I believe, Lauren, your record is intact. I thought I was going to get through that one with no tears, but the last, uh, the last stanza. What a glorious hymn. You know, I think often speakers look for a way to tie the hymns into the, the message. And last night we were visiting my wife's cousin who's in the hospital, and my wife asked her cousin, what's your favorite hymn? And uh, I think they both have arrived at Amazing Grace, and then they, of course, put me on the spot. What's your favorite hymn? And I don't know. I think it's whatever one I happen to be singing at the moment, but I finally arrived on It Is Well With My Soul. You know, we, uh, we sang No Other Plea. In the one verse we left out, I'm going I'm to go back and visit it just for a moment. The third verse, my heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. But we're leaning on the word of God, aren't we? We can look for truth a lot of places. This is the Bible chapel. We, we study the Bible. And it's a pleasure to be here and open the word with you, but, you know, maybe I have obsessive-compulsive disorder. I keep checking, and the last time I looked, James 3.1 is still in the Bible. Uh, knowing that teachers will be held to a stricter condemnation, it is, it's with wisdom if we come to the platform with a little fear. But we are ambassadors. We're challenged and charged with giving no message other than what we've been sent with, right? And if it comes from the word... Well, at least the part where we're reading the word, it's perfectly true. How we interpret it, of course, may come out a little differently. The last time I spoke to you, um, I talked about prophecy and types. How the Western mind, we look at it, prophecy is prediction and fulfillment. And indeed, it is that. Uh, the Hebrew mind will take it a step further. They will also look at pattern, and pattern is also prophecy. The, the word gives us instruction, and if we look at the patterns that uh, God paints for us in these word pictures, we can develop a, even a deeper understanding of his, his immutable um, um, attribute. That is, he is unchanging. Some of the details and minor specifics and how he deals with individuals might change, but his nature never changes. And I guess I'd ask, when we read the Word of God and when we study, do we open it only looking for what we already believe? Are we looking for those things that reinforce what that we already hold to be true? Or do we look at it with an open heart and an open ear, looking to find something new? And I, I have difficulty with that, quite honestly. I know what I believe, but how well do I know what I believe? And is it on a firm foundation? Well, before I get into the message, let me paint myself into a theological box and make it pretty small. Uh, I'm dispensational in my understanding of Scripture. I'm a millennialist, literal. I believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the reign of Christ here on earth. Uh, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, of course, I believe that salvation, that's, that's by grace, by faith alone and Christ alone. I reject Calvinism. I reject Arminianism, uh, universalism, and probably all the rest of the isms. Um, in each of those cases, they've taken one of the attributes of God, as I've said before, and elevated it to a position 
which subjugates the other attributes of God, which it's not right. And it leads to error. They do that because they come across what they perceive to be contradictions in Scripture and are seeking to resolve it. And you know, I remember a, a preacher, I, I don't remember who it was, but many years ago said this. It really struck me at the time. He said, when you find a contradiction in Scripture, rejoice. Well, rejoice? Was, rejoice, he says, because when you, by the power of the Holy Spirit guiding you unto truth, sort it out, there's going to be an incredible blessing. So with that in mind, um, I'll, I guess I'll close that theological box that I'm painting myself into with this one last statement that I um, fully subscribe to joyfully and with great gladness, that little phrase, which is often hurled as an epithet against the church. Once saved, always saved, is gloriously true. As I've said before, if I had no verse other than Romans 8 verse 30, it's a done deal. So we're not talking about justification when we talk about works. And works have become a dirty word in our circles, right? Because the world tries to use works to be justified to God, and that can't happen. Well, I want to talk about some word pictures this morning. But again, before we get into that, since we're talking about rapture, I'm going to talk about some of those we would consider our forefathers, brethren, or those who are closely associated with them as well. I said, I'm. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I'd be in the, the company of people like J.N. Darby, William Kelly, Schofield, and, and of course a litany of others. There's a couple uh, that were pre-tribulational but switched their position, yet they were great and godly men. Uh, George Mueller had been pre-tribulational, he ended up post-tribulational. R.A. Torrey and, and others that were associated with fundamentalism. Y you know, we know that there was a a rift between Darby and Mueller, acrimonious at times. And when there were some in the camp of Darby who sought to savage Mueller in public, Darby told him, you leave him alone, he lives what I preach. And on another occasion, he again, trying to restrain those within the exclusive group that were uh, rallying against Mueller, he said, leave him alone, don't bother him, for he dwells in the heavenlies. I would disagree with Mueller's view on, on the rapture, but who can argue with a man who could call down the power of God with fervent and effective prayers? There was a third group that believed in a partial rapture, would include R.C. Chapman, who had an impact on many, including Hudson Taylor. Maybe you'd say he wasn't a brother, one of the brethren, but he certainly drew support from among the assemblies. Hudson Taylor also believed in a partial rapture. Uh, Robert Govett, uh, David Panton, uh, Pember, who I disagree with some of his other things, and yet he also had some wonderful insight on the word, Watchman Nee and others. I reject the partial rapture theory, but here are a bunch of men that I think if we sat down and analyzed our life, we'd agree they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how do we resolve these issues? If you have these great men of God that can't resolve these uh, what do we do? Well, again, we, we lean on the Word of God. That's the source of truth. And if you take anything I say this morning, is just fully accept it, you get a big fat zero, right? You, you need to... Paul bragged about the Bereans because they didn't trust him. Well, I want to continue talking about types, and I'm going to talk about the Bride of Christ. And I'll say up front um, some words that uh, maybe aren't often said from the platform, but I do not find the Body of Christ 
and the bride of Christ to be synonymous terms. I think that the bride of Christ is a subset, and I'm just going to go through scripture and see what you think. A number of years ago, in reading and looking through the parables of Jesus, I came across those things which I realized were contradictions to me. I couldn't resolve them being presented in the way that I was used to being taught them, generally reaching out and speaking of the lost. In some of them, I saw what appeared to me to be clear pictures of believers, and it didn't make sense to me. And I, I still haven't fully sorted it out, but it's at least brought me to the point where even if the consequences of what I, I think I'm seeing in Scripture are not true, at least what it's directing us to do and what manner of life we ought to live becomes pretty clear. Well, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and while you're turning there, I'll, I'll read a verse out of 2 Corinthians. As you're turning to Ephesians chapter 5, perhaps if you have dexterity, you'll also stick a finger in Revelation chapter 19. And while you're turning there, I'll read one verse out of 2 Corinthians. It's, it's some wise instruction here from the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians who were believers, some of them spiritual and some of them carnal. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. That's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Well, we're going to talk about the bride of Christ, so we're going to speak a little bit about marriage and the type and picture it paints for us. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Uh, us husbands like that verse, don't we? Let's, let's just confess it up front. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. I'm quoting from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In this passage, of course, we have great, wise, wonderful, very beneficial instruction for uh, the institution of marriage between a man and a woman here on earth. But Paul tells us in verse 32, it's a mystery, and he's speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
And then, of course, he ties it in with that practical application. But nevertheless, even though this is about Christ and the church, each individual amongst you is to love his own wife. Us men have to be told to love, don't we? It's difficult for us. At least I'm willing to confess that. I struggle with the, the idea of what is love. I know it's when it's, I can tell it when it's demonstrated. And I've spoken with tears before, so I won't go into it about somebody who gave their life in battle. That's real. That's how I know that's what love is. You know what love is? The definition of love is when you put the well-being of somebody else above your own. Us men, that's difficult for us to absorb that and then to display it and to manifest it in our daily lives. Of course, they tell the woman to respect the husband. She has no problem loving. See, a mother is equipped. She puts aside her own needs, wants, and desires to care for her children and for those around her. It comes naturally. So marriage here on earth is this joining of a husband who has certain strengths and a wife who has certain strengths, and the completion of that is that all the needs are met. But this is a picture of Christ in his church. Revelation chapter 19, this should really be our goal. We're going to read about the marriage of the Lamb in just a couple verses here. The marriage of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The bride has made herself ready. I wonder how do we apply that? I think intuitively we know, but what's the fullness of that meaning? Well, we're, we're talking about marriage, and I said this is going to be on types and pictures, and we're going to look at some brides out of the Old Testament and see how they uh, picture the bride of Christ. And if we're going to look at brides, we're going to look at the men to whom they were betrothed, and we look at them because each of these men are types of Christ. Uh, there's many we could look at, but I'm going to look at seven, Adam, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, Salmon, Boaz, and Solomon. And briefly, again, they are types of Christ. We're told that in Scripture, and we can see it in the manner in which they're portrayed and in their actions and deeds. And in Adam, I mean, Paul even tells us he's a type of Christ uh, in uh, Romans 5. When we think about this. Um, Adam and Eve, their creation is unlike the rest of mankind, right? I mean, like Joe Reese would say, don't read your scripture too quickly. Take time and ponder what each word means. Well, we're all born of natural birth. Neither one of Adam or Eve were, were they? But they're also different in their creation. God picked up the dust of the earth and breathed life into it, and Adam came about. We can read in Genesis chapter 2, the creation of Eve, it's a little different, isn't it? In Adam, we see a type of Christ. Um, 
and you know, we think about it, we're told Adam was not deceived, but Eve being deceived fell into transgression. And for at least a brief moment in time, Eve had fallen from her glorified state. Her glory had left as she gave the fruit to Adam to eat. And, you know, theologians have mixed responses whether how noble he was in joining his wife, but recognizing that she was lost. For whatever reason, he chose to join her. And through that joining to his wife, of course, came about the opportunity to save the rest of mankind, the progeny that would not come forth otherwise. Isaac, oh, what a picture of the type of Christ there. We see Abraham and Isaac going up the mountainside. Uh, Isaac saying, I see, I, I see the knife, I, I see the fire. I got the wood on his back. Where, where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say those glorious words? My son, God will provide himself as a lamb for a burnt offering. Joseph, in Genesis 37 to 45, theologians will say, well, you can easily find over a hundred ways that Joseph is a type of Christ. We might say, well, he came into his own, his brothers, and uh, they rejected him. His brothers even asked him, will you indeed reign over us? Isn't that what the Jews in the world in large really says to Christ, we think of the, the parable in Luke 19, the delegation that goes after the master to go into the distant land. We will not have this man to rule over us. You know, the, his brothers, the Jewish, they were the Jew, original Jewish leaders, right? I mean, they were the, the patriarchs, the, the heads of each of the tribes. They plotted to kill him, just as the Jews plotted to kill Jesus. Uh, they put uh, Joseph into a pit without water, a type of the grave. And of course, Jesus went into the grave and a type. Joseph was lifted out of the pit. Jesus was lifted out of the grave. The brothers sold Joseph. Jesus was sold into bondage, the bondage of our sin. They were both raised to the right hand of the power of authority, though, weren't they? Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh and Jesus to the right hand of the majesty on high. If you think about the comings, the first coming of Christ and the first coming to Joseph. The brothers, the first coming to Joseph, they didn't recognize him. The second coming, when they did recognize him, they were dismayed over what they had done. We're told that's going to be the same for the Jews at the second coming, right? They will recognize him and mourn for him as an only son, the one whom they have pierced. Moses is the type of Christ as an intercessor, deliverer, and redeemer. Salmon, who marries Rahab, is a type of Christ. He's of the lineage of Judah. His name means investiture, uh, ceremony. Also covering, of course, we're covered in Christ. The blood of Christ covers us, washes away our sin. Boaz from Bethlehem, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, who marries Ruth. You know, in that, you talk about types. In that story, we have Naomi, right? A Jewish, a Jewess. She's out of the land without husband. Uh, in, a, in a later study, maybe I'll look at the, the wife of Jehovah and, and the divorcement. But we have Naomi out of the land without husband, without son, without possession. She's brought back into the land and joined again to it through the joining of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. If Naomi is a type of Israel and Boaz is a type of Christ, what's Ruth? A, well, a type of the bride of Christ. Finally, Solomon, uh, the princely son of David. He sat on the throne. And Christ is going to sit on the throne, the son of David. Solomon's rule was also characterized by peace. 
And we know that there will be no peace on this earth till the Prince of Peace returns. Well, if Jesus Christ was born a Hebrew, a Jew, within the, from the tribe of Judah, of course, yet the promise was through Abraham in Genesis 15 or 12 and, and 22 rather, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. In this study we're gonna do this morning of these brides, we're gonna see that it's primarily a Gentile bride that's spoken of in each case. Some theologians would say all seven of these, I would disagree about the Shulamite whom Solomon married. In the early days, the church was all Jewish, wasn't it? And down through the ages, there's always been a faithful remnant of Jews who recognized Jesus as Messiah. Another fact we're gonna see here, that in type, the death is not recorded for any of these seven brides we're gonna speak of. And again, it's a picture of the bride of Christ gonna be removed before the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth. Uh, Eve, Eve was obviously born before Abraham. She's definitely a Gentile. We have the death of uh, Adam recorded in Genesis chapter 5, but no death recorded for Eve. Rebecca was from Nahor, from Mesopotamia. She was of the family of Abraham, but not of his progeny. And she wasn't a Jew either, again, a, a, a Gentile. We have um, the picture of in the, the death of Isaac is recorded. Although the death of Rebecca is referred to, her death itself is not recorded. Joseph, after correctly interpreting the dreams of the Pharaoh, one of his rewards is that he is given the daughter of Pharaoh, Ezenath, again a Gentile. The death of Joseph is recorded, the death of Ezenath is not. Moses marries a Midianite, uh, Zipporah. The death of Moses is recorded, not of Zipporah. Rahab, the harlot, what a beautiful picture of being redeemed. Rahab, the harlot, a prostitute in the city of Jericho, obviously a Gentile. The, the, the Israelites are just entering the land. Um, theologians will, will argue, well, maybe she was just an innkeeper. Uh, I think in the Septuagint, it's referred to as porneia, which from which we get pornography. I, I tend to doubt that. But in those days, prostitution didn't have quite the stigma it has today, although you could certainly argue that it's lost much of its stigma today. But here we have a harlot who is redeemed, a picture of redemption. And indeed, from her progeny comes the Messiah. Uh, Boaz marries Ruth, the Moabite, again a Gentile. Finally, Solomon marries the Shulamite in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Uh, probably actually rather than from near Shunem, as is uh, thought by some, more than likely from actually on the east side of the Jordan from Mahanaim. Probably a Jew, and again a picture that uh, the Bride of Christ also includes Jews. You know, for much of the history of the church, the church has been the chief um, abuser, accuser, and persecutor of the Jews. And it's a, it's a sad story that's associated with those who take the name of Christianity. Well, let's take a closer look at a couple of the brides. We'll look at Eve and we'll look at Rebecca. If with a very broad brush I were to paint a picture of Eve, we might say it in just four words, taken out of Adam. 
you know, we, we, we get the, the story of uh, the creation of Eve in the second chapter of Genesis. And again, it's, it's pretty well known, but do we stop and think, like I said, as Joe um, Reese, uh, encouraged us, don't be too quick. He says, ponder what the words mean. Slow down as you look at them. Adam was created by God. Eve was taken from his side. The manner in which Eve came into being was a small portion of Adam's body was removed, a rib in the flesh attached to it. And I believe that's going to um, be an accurate type for the bride of Christ who was taken out of the body of Christ. And I don't think they're synonymous terms. All of Adam did not become Eve, a small portion. And I postulate that that's going to be similar for the bride of Christ. Adam was put to sleep before the rib was removed. Christ was put to sleep before his side was pierced. I like what one theologian pointed out in that, that the spear went in and the blood came out, and the blood speaks to uh, the salvation of the spirit, whereas the water speaks to the salvation of, of the life, the soul. You know, Jesus spoke a little about that when he was speaking to Nicodemus, didn't he? He said, you must be born of the water and the spirit. Well, if we look at Rebecca, we have not just a picture of a bride, but we also have a, a wonderful picture of the selection of the bride. In Genesis 24, we're told that uh, Abraham, who I see here as a type, a picture of God the Father, sends a servant, an unnamed servant. There are some theologians, again, that, that, that think, well, it's probably Eliezer who was in uh, of, uh, Damascus, the one who uh, Adam said, well, I don't have a pride. All my wealth is going to go to Eliezer the, from Damascus, the Syrian. He's not named here, and I think it's on purpose. Whether it's him or not, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So Abraham sends his servant to find a bride who's going to be Rebekah, for his son, Isaac, who's a type of Jesus. The servant was instructed, don't take this bride from among the Canaanites, a picture of the world. He says, oh, but rather go to my own people. How do you put it? My kindred of my household, of my father's house, rather. And I, I think that we're going to see there a picture, a type of the, of the church. So he's supposed to go to his, the house of his father and to take a bride for his son. And we want to pay attention to what is done by the servant and how it pictures the Holy Spirit. The servant is entrusted to select the bride. The Spirit comes to select the bride for Christ. He showers her with expensive gifts, as the Spirit even gives gifts unto the church. After that, she's left to make a decision because Isaac, I mean, the servant is the one who's going to lead her back to Isaac, and she has to completely trust him. She's asked to leave her family, her siblings, her friends, all her possessions, all that she knows, all that she's known in the world, she's asked to leave behind and trust this servant to take her to the one to whom she's been betrothed. If, if you look at the family there, we're also told, now uh, Laban, her brother, and the rest of the family, what do they say? They say, 
remain with us yet a few days. Say 10 days. Stay with us 10 days. And as I was reading that, I was thinking, I know I, when I was speaking to you, um, probably been a couple years now, about prophecy and about the nearness of the rapture and why we ought to be ready, I uh, offered up a theory. And I, I don't teach this. I'm not dogmatic about it. But I suspect that from the rapture to the beginning of the tribulation is going to be three and a half years. And again, I, I don't teach that. I'm not dogmatic about it, but it makes sense to me when I look at Scripture. You know, most of the church thinks that the rapture starts the tribulation. That's not true. Everybody recognizes that, right? It starts with a covenant with the Antichrist and Israel. Well, if you have the rapture, and then three and a half years later you have the beginning of the tribulation, what happens three and a half years after that? The abomination of desolation. The Antichrist goes into the temple, says, I am God, worship me. And to me, I just look and go, well, the world's going to say, you're God, worship you. And then they'll think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Seven years ago, all those kooks who disappeared said this was going to happen. And there was going to be a seven-year tribulation period. And here it is. I don't know if that really ties into the 10 days here in, uh, with Rebecca. But she didn't tarry. She went with the servant in return to Isaac. Now, um, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is, that's what you believe. That's your orthodoxy, right? And I have my orthodoxy. And we gather together in the New Testament uh, pattern assembly because we share a fairly common orthodoxy. And I know that what I'm um, putting forth here is perhaps significantly different. The common argument is the bride of Christ is not divided. In, or, or the, the body of Christ is not divided. And that's easy to say, but is it true? Are, we are divided in a number of ways, and they're not necessarily bad ways. Um, not all are evangelists, not all are pastor teachers, not all are prophets, not all get up and teach. Uh, we're all members and different members, but of one body. And we're also divided in the fact that, well, most of the body of Christ is already in heaven, isn't it? Now, again, I'm not being dogmatic about this, and if my understanding of the consequences of disobedience are different, well, Scripture's still clear on how we ought to live our life. Well, when I take this and put it into context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the trying by fire of our works, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, receiving recompense for our works, be they good or evil, in reconciling in my mind the parables of Jesus, I begin to think this bride of Christ may be a little more important than what I've considered to be in the past. The bride, if she's a separate entity, she's separate because of her behavior. You know, a year or two ago, I, I, I came on a Sunday evening and we shared together Psalm 45. Let's turn to Psalm 45 and uh, look at a, just a few verses there. Psalm 45, this glorious picture. I mean, the writer says, my, my heart is just overflowing. It's bubbling over. He says, my, my, my tongue is the pen of a, a ready writer. He's stirred up and he sings the praises of uh, this king and his kingdom and his glory. But in the 10th verse of Psalm 45, he turns his attention uh, to the bride. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Well, that's a lot like Rebecca, isn't it? 
the, then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Just the very word Lord means it's master over us. We should be obedient, right? The instruction, because he's your Lord, bow, bow down to him. The daughters of Tyre will come with a gift and the rich among the people will seek your favor. So there's other favored ones there besides the bride. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. I can hardly read about the virgins here without thinking about Matthew 25. The ten virgins, the wise and the foolish. And, you know, for most of my life, I've received and accepted the teaching that they were five who were saved and five who were lost are locked out of heaven. And to be honest, um, in sorting through some of this, particularly since I was so troubled by that passage, uh, I, I can't hold that view of that anymore. I don't think you can make an argument from Scripture that the five foolish virgins are not saved. And let me tell you why. Is the world waiting for Christ to return? All ten of the virgins were waiting. Now you can make a, a justified argument that there are some in the churches who are waiting for Christ who aren't going to hear the shout because they're not saved. They're not actually truly saved. That argument would fly. But all ten of them fell asleep. So they're not the perf perfect um, brides waiting for their groom. You could argue, well, it's, everybody's got to sleep sometime. But they're all awakened by the shout. They all hear the, the shout. The five wise and the five foolish. All ten of them have some oil in their lamps, a picture of the Holy Spirit. They have, their lamps are lit. They're going out for the five foolish, and they go to seek additional oil. Uh, there are those who in the, the partial rapture camp that point to this, and that's one of their main justifications. I, I, I don't subscribe to the partial rapture. I think that when the rapture occurs, all who are in Christ are going to go with him and stand and be judged. Those who preceded us in death and those of us who yet remain. So how do we resolve all of this? Well, I think as we read here in Psalm 45, there's going to be many who are found faithful, but apparently their works aren't quite enough to make them the chaste bride of Christ. Now, granted, I, I could well be wrong on this, but again, what should our behavior be? Even if the consequences I, I see in this are wrong, our behavior ought to be the same. I'm not suggesting that we do something different, but that we all seek to attain a perfect running of that race course which has been set before each of us, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. Run with endurance a race which is set before you and not turn aside to the things uh, of the world and to commit adultery and to, uh, or to neglect so great a salvation as we're told in Hebrews chapter 2. You know, you can't neglect something that you don't already possess. You can refuse it. You can ignore it. You can even throw it away if you do already own it, but you cannot neglect something that you don't possess. And if we look at Psalm 45 in the context of the Psalms immediately surrounding it, as I pointed out a year or so ago, 
the four psalms that preceded are a very clear picture of the church age. Psalm 41, the psalmist says, I am a sinner. And Psalm 42, he's trusting in God while he's in exile in this distant land. Psalm 43, he's crying for deliverance. Psalm 44, he's remembering the faithfulness of God and the former deliverance and praying for that deliverance again. And I think we're in the closing seconds of Psalm 44. The marriage of the Lamb is soon upon us. And, it's, and I would say that it's not the quantity of our works, it is a condition of our heart and our, our walk before the Lord as we enter into eternity that determines where we're going to be for all eternity. The three following Psalms after Psalm 45 are a picture of the millennial reign of Christ and the eternal state. Psalm 46, God is present. He's our, God is now our strength and refuge, a picture of the, the millennium. Psalm 47, likewise, God is the king of all the earth and peace is reigning. Why? Because the Prince of Peace has come. And Psalm 48 is a picture of those uh, glorious closing uh, passages at the end of Revelation. The holy mountain, the city, uh, lifted up in joy to all the earth. Well, if we are in the closing seconds of Psalm 44, what manner of life ought we to live? As John would say, what manner of love is this that you have bestowed upon us, Father, that we might be called your children? How ought we to behave? Are we living our lives in a manner which prepares us to be a chaste bride of Christ? Is our lamp lit, but is it low on oil? Are we falling asleep? Or are we turning our eyes away from our bridegroom and looking upon the things of the world? Are we more interested in living in time rather than planning for eternity? Maybe some of us are saved, but we're slothful servants like those in Matthew 25, the one who buried his talent, or Luke 19. Again, if you look at those two parables, that's, that's a, a couple of them that really got me looking into this a number of years ago. It also helps to resolve the tension between the isms like Calvinism and Arminianism because it defines what happens with works. You know, the, the, the servant in Matthew 25 is cast into the darkness outside, and we take that to mean cast into the fires of hell. Yet if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 19, and, there, and Jesus tells them only a couple days apart, one in Jericho, the other in Jerusalem. Same story. The slothful servant in Luke 19 receives a rebuke, but who is it that's put to death? Well, he says, bring those who would not have me to rule over them and slay them in my presence. Me personally, I, I found that troubling. I found this contradiction. I found this thing that didn't seem to make sense with what I'd been taught. And so that's what started many years ago, me looking at works. You know, I, I've said before, I, I have a lot of brothers in Christ, a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love, who I believe are saved and who are on their way to heaven, yet I, I disagree with their methods and manners and the directions of their ministries. You know, Rick Warren said something in one of his books that I would not recommend you read. But what he said is very true. He says, we in the church, we're quick to remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and point out we're saved by grace. It's by faith and it's not by works. It's a gift of God lest any man should boast. And we stop right there. We don't go on to Ephesians 2, 10. 
We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk amongst them. Do we allow ourselves to define what those good works are? How good is good enough? You know, as Jabe Nicholson says, God does like good works. They're just an insult to him if we try to use it to replace Jesus Christ. And yet, as Paul would often say, almost with a degree of paranoia, I buffet my body and keep it under subjection, lest after having preached to others, I myself might be found disqualified. Adakamos in the Greek, castaway, not found worthy to be sold in the market for fruit and produce. What does that mean? He's the one who gave us Romans 8, verse 30. Those I called, I justified. Those I justified, I also glorified. If you've ever been justified, you're also glorified. And I would add, we were also sanctified. We're promised to be conformed to the image of Christ. But at what level? How far do we allow the Holy Spirit to lift us up and purify us and make us a chaste bride for Christ? That's a work we do in concert with the Spirit. God has given us free will to choose salvation or to reject it. He's given us free will to be obedient or to be disobedient. Again, if we look at the wife of Jehovah, wife of God, and read a little bit about it this morning in Hosea, that God has promised he is faithful even when we're faithless, but there is a cost for disobedience. Well, maybe there's some here who aren't even sure when they die where they're going to go. Uh, like what Glenn Gunderson often says, man, if you don't know where you're going, it's not safe to die. You can't die yet. You've got to get it squared away. You've got to get it right. And you know, it's, it, heaven's a real place and hell's a real place. And all human beings are going to spend all eternity in one of those two places. And God lets us make the choice. Don't send anybody to hell. He does erect roadblocks in our path, and we go over them, around them, under them, and sometimes even through them. And if we end up in hell, it's because we will have climbed over every roadblock of love that God has put in our path. So if you don't know where you're going when you die, all you have to do is admit that uh, uh, I'm not perfect. You know, imperfection can't be joined to God. God's perfect. If imperfection is joined to him, now there's imperfection, and that's not going to happen. I don't know about you, but I can't make myself perfect. I can't take the stench of my sin into heaven with me, and only Christ can remove that. But if I'm going to be clothed in proper wedding dress, I better behave appropriately too. But for the unsaved, I would say this. All you have to do is confess your condition before God. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe God when he says the wages of sin, what you have earned because of sin is death. And he says, I pay every debt. He says, and I, I will collect every debt as well. And believe that that's what the threat you're under. God doesn't leave us without hope. He says, come unto me. Jesus said, drink of me freely. I'm, I'm the water of life. If we drink of him, we'll have eternal life. He said it this way, if you hear my words and believe him who sent me, you'll have everlasting life. You'll not come into judgment, but have already passed from death unto life. If a sinner can say, I'm a sinner, I deserve death, but God, you said you'd love me and want me in heaven, and you sent your son, he bore the punishment that was due me. The shedding of his blood has washed away my sin. You put him in the grave, and on the third day he was resurrected. 
evidence that the sacrifice was accepted and evidence that God has power over life and death. Again, and what Jesus said in Revelation 1.18 is true. 170 says, I'm the one who was dead, remember? He says, look at me, behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to hell and death. Call upon God, ask for forgiveness, trust that Christ died for your sins and God resurrected him from the dead. And then I'd say, tell somebody, share it with somebody. At that moment you move from being God's creation, like Adam and Eve, and you become a child of God. He comes down from off the bench where he sat as judge, ready to throw you into the lake of fire. And he comes down and puts his arm around you. He's now your father. What manner of love is this that the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us truth. And we thank you that as your son promised, you send the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Yet we recognize that we're dull. Our hearing is weak. We have little push. Oftentimes when we should be teachers, we still require the milk of the word ourselves. Yet our desire is that we would come to a fuller knowledge of you, Father, that we would have a, a right and appropriate fear, a characterization of awe, not only for what's been done for us, but who you are in your holiness, that we would be spurred on to live righteous lives. And we're not able, but by the power of your spirit, we can. We pray that we would be made ready as a chaste bride for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who said, if you love me, do the things I command. How can you say you love me when, we, when you don't obey me? Father, help us to finish well. Help us to understand your word. Help us to recognize open doors that you set before us to minister to one another, to exhort, to encourage, to chastise as it's appropriate, to argue for the truth with one another that we might sharpen the countenance of our friends and all the time listening in love as words are spoken in love. Our desire again is that we would finish well, that we would honor your name, exalted here on earth, and lift up your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we've gathered together this morning. Amen.